If not, um, we're gonna post them on the side chat right now so you can grab them over there as well. We're gonna have uh, about an hour together, uh, a little bit frontal from Noam and you can feel free to put questions in the chat or, or thoughts as well. Um, and then we'll open it up for conversation and, and questions uh, at the end. So Noam, thank you so much for being back with us. Okay, fine. Okay, I hadn't planned this for Rabbanim, but uh, you'll, uh, you'll upgrade me by your comments and questions in chat or just in general. Um, so uh, the first thing is, let me, uh, I've, I've been taught that it's a good idea at the beginning of a, uh, of, a, of a lecture on Zoom to put in sort of a warm-up chat question that you can respond to in the chat. I won't necessarily be reading it at the beginning, but by the end. And the warm-up chat question is, uh, how your parents gave you your sex education. If you'd like to talk about how you gave your children your sex, edu sex education, that's fine. But think about what your parents did to teach you. And that should be in the back of your minds as we take a look at some of these texts, a lot of which I'm sure you're very aware of. So Zoom, of course, is an attempt somehow to melt space and time and to deny orientation. But I will orient you nonetheless and tell you that I'm in Yerushalayim, I'm in Talpiot, around the corner from the Nobel Prize winner, Shmuel Yosef Agnon, the literary giant's house. Uh, out my window when it's day, I can see the Dead Sea. And uh, just across the street from my house is a gift of the Trump administration's evangelical supporters. I have the US embassy across the street with the biggest American flag I have ever seen. Um, so that's our orientation because I'm in the East and you should be facing East in some kind of a way. Uh, you know, I see nobody has masks, that's fine because I've had my second uh, Pfizer vaccination. So, Balt by dear, um, it's going very well. Um, now, the, some of the books that I've worked on, as many of you know, I think their overall theme is homemade Judaism. They're kind of how-to books for how you take your Judaism and do it at home around Shabbat, around Hanukkah, around Pesach, and so on. And in some ways, the new book that I'm doing uh, with JPS that's coming out in August, which is sort of the occasion for uh, Reb Shmuley's invitation, it's called Sacred Sex, and it's about marital intimacy, and it's an intellectual history, but it could have been turned into, with the proper photographs and diagrams, into a how-to book for, for your bedroom. Uh, for, and I think that's appropriate for this period of social distancing, because one of the people who you don't main, have to maintain social distance from is your significant other that you live with. And therefore, many people, if they have expenses, they put their money into home improvements, into, into interior design, into bedrooms. So we're going to be talking about the bedroom protocol and how you can improve your bedroom in the larger sense of uh, that Chazal had. Um, okay, one of the things that led me to my interest in uh, sexuality and at the same time into dialogue is, of course, growing up in the late 1960s, going to Columbia University in the days when whenever we didn't want to finish the semester, we went on strike and then they gave us pass fail or whatever. The period of the Jewish of the Chavura, I was in the New York Chavura, the period of the Jewish catalog and so on. Um, and as I began my research, uh, coming from my own background, which is the American sexual revolution of the last of the late 60s, I discovered there was another great sexual revolution, a Jewish one, 
and it was a double revolution, in fact, a revolution and a counter-revolution, which was happening in the ultra-Orthodox world between two different parts of the Haredi world, of the ultra-Orthodox world, the Litvaks and the Hasidim of the 1950s when I was like two years old. And we're going to point at that in, in much greater detail. You'll find it in, um, in the book that I wrote. And I'm happy to share with you chapters of it, if you'd like, as well as uh, other kinds of materials I put together for teaching. So let me give you the context of what we're going to try to do in this hour. First, I'm going to start with Reb Zalman, uh, because Reb Zalman actually, uh, he bridges the gap from the Haredi education he got to the his, his involvement in the American sexual revolution and his, his attempt to create a notion of sacred sex. That'll be an opener. Then we're going to go back to where it all starts, which is mitzvat onah, the commandment in the Torah about marital intercourse, very briefly. Then to the Talmud, we'll do a little bit of rabbinic bedroom voyeurism uh, to the two famous uh, be uh, bedroom scenes, the one of Rav and the one of uh, Rabbi Eliezer um, and Ben Hurkanus. And that will give us the preparation for going to the Middle Ages for a very simple and uh, simplistic presentation of the two major halachic codes, the code of Maimonides, Mishnah, Torah, an attempt to take these idiosyncratic Talmudic stories and turn them into halacha, into norms. First, Maimonides following the story of Rav, and then the Shulchan Aruch, Yosef Karo, the 16th century in Svat, who followed Rabbi Eliezer in a clear way. And then we jump to the modern period in which we can see the Gera Hasidim on one hand, and the Litvaks around the Chazon Ish, that is the Lithuanian yeshiva greats of the 1950s in Bnei Brak, both of them beginning to recover and just barely trying to recover from the Holocaust, in which their communities suffered more than any other Jewish group uh, from a from a numbers point of view and an institutional point of view and a leadership point of view, and see how these two different groups. I don't know whether it's a response to the Holocaust, but it's an attempt to rebuild Jewish life, ultra-Orthodox Jewish life, Jewish family life, and to say that what happens in the bedroom is, if not the most important, the second most important thing that will bring Judaism back alive again in their ultra-Orthodox sense. Okay, that's where we're going to be doing. So I'm going to share the document with you. Okay. Make sure it's big enough that you can see, I hope. Okay. You're not going to tell us what the most important one is. <laughs> yes, I will. So here we are for our topic. Here's the picture, the cover that they decided for the book, which is taken from a Mark Chagall called The Kiss. Uh, quite bizarre, but interesting. Um, I'm, I like the price they gave to my book because it's double high. Uh, that's also very appropriate. Now, so we're starting with Reb Zalman. So just to remind you some of the things, this is Reb Zalman meeting the Dalai Lama, um, uh, clearly having a very personal, intimate, uh, physically intimate, as well as emotionally intimate moment between the two of them. And Reb Zalman, who was born in Eastern Europe, grew up in New York, I think in the Chabad community, clearly in a Haredi yeshiva. He was along with Reb Shlomo Karlbach in the early 50s with the previous, not the living dead Rebbe of Lubavitch of Chabad, but the previous one, his father, I think it's his father-in-law, who sent Reb Shlomo and uh, Reb Zalman, Shlomo Karlbach, on their way to universities as the first shlichim, the first missionaries, to try to save the Jewish people, that is the Jews of America, in the university system. 
Later on, along with Art Green, he creates the Chavura. Later on, he uh, more or less, along with Arthur Waskow, creates the Jewish renewal movement. And, uh, and that's how he ends up in Boulder. I remember Reb Zalman because when I was uh, 11 years old, he came to Camp Ramah, to this Jewish summer camp I went to. He taught us a song that I've never forgotten that song. So he was a charismatic figure also for 11-year-olds a long, long time ago. So let's take a look at a little bit of his wisdom. He never did any systematic work in the area of Jewish sex education or marital intimacy issues, but he does have some interesting one-liners that are worth looking at. So let's start because he sort of presents for us part of the problem in the ultra-Orthodox world, which is not only in the ultra-Orthodox world. And this is what he writes in retrospect. When I was a student in the yeshiva, I remember thinking of sexuality as that lousy trick that God played on us. How could God do such a terrible thing as to implant in us an urge that is so difficult to resist? I would even get bad thoughts, machshavot, zarot, or hear hurim from looking at the ads for maiden form bras that were in the subway. Now, as many of you know, it's a very central part of Judaism, certainly rabbinic Judaism and the ultra-Orthodox world is kibush hayetzer, conquering your natu natural desires. As they put it in the Musser movement in the Lithuanian ultra-Orthodox world of the 19th and early 20th century, the goal is to break your nature. So here's a child becoming aware of his sexual urges, knowing that his job is to destroy the thoughts of sexuality as well as the actions of sexuality. And obviously masturbation was clearly a part of that that they were aiming at in the ultra-Orthodox world. But he's living in New York City and is exposed in the subway to maiden form bras. So part of the tension here is the tension between America and the ultra-Orthodox world trying to build for itself a ghetto of significant others in which they would protect themselves from what America was offering and which they didn't want to have offered. So just to remind you, Reb Zalman and Arthur Green in the Jewish catalog, they both are, are opposed to see American commercialization of sex, the maiden form bra, and the American sexual revolution of the late 60s, both of them are actually degrading and disenchanting the expressions of physical intimacy by turning them into self-centered instinctual derives to be satisfied without love and without commitment. So, so it, it, not only was the existing America of the 50s and 60s like that, but so was the revolution against it. In other words, the American sexual revolution as these men understood it was not one that liberated us from the commercialization of sex. It simply re released us from the guilt that goes along with sexuality. Now, so where did they want us to go? They saw American sexual revolution as saying it's a natural desire. Everybody should be able to express it. It doesn't have to be involved in a marital or even in a relationship. It's a desire. It's a consumer desire. It's a natural need guiltlessly to be fulfilled. And both of them were interested in in, in fighting not only against the guilt trip of, uh, of uh, Protestant America's attitude towards sex, but also against the guiltless trip and no less a dangerous trip of the American sexual revolution. And sacred sexuality was the path to real sexual liberation. 
and, and said very, very explicitly and radically by Reb Zalman, sacred love is the experience of ecstasy. It's the real sexual revolution. I'm in favor, he says, of a revolution, and I want a sexual revolution, but real, real liberation has to be sacred. Sacred sexuality is about love, not merely in the positive feelings between intimates, but an overwhelming reverence for all embodied life on whatever level of existence. Sacred sexuality is about the re-enchantment of our lives. It's about embracing the imponderable mystery of existence. That's very important. He's not only interested in the, a healthy sexual relationship or even a healthy love relationship. He sees it as part of a larger worldview of spirituality. And we're going to see that that same attempt to combine the interpersonal with the larger sacred cause of the redemption of the world or coming into an, uh, uh, what he called a spiritual ecology is actually also one of the things moving the ultra-Orthodox world among some Litvaks already in the 1950s, something I had no idea about. Now, Reb Zalman also concretely, like the rabbis, was interested in actually doing sex education. It wasn't just about theory, and we're going to see the ultra-Orthodox are also interested in the concrete aspects, though the ultra-Orthodox probably wouldn't approve of Reb Zalman's approach. But if you have synagogues, who knows, you could introduce it in your synagogue. So this is what Reb Zalman describes. He's teaching bar mitzvah boys. I don't know if this is in Winnipeg or where it is. I ask my bar mitzvah boys. Do you masturbate? And first they're a little sheepish about it. And then they say, yes. And I say, you know what? It's a good thing to do on Shabbos. Take your time, put on some music. I guess he wasn't worried. Maybe it was on the Shabbos clock and explore your body and what feels good for you. And most important, let God in. This could take a lot of analysis, but let's see a couple of elements here. Number one is let's talk about sex. Let's not hide sex. Perf talking about it is perfectly legitimate, including as part of adolescent education. The second thing he's saying is masturbation is not the worst sin in the world, which is literally exactly what the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law and uh, Yosef Karo says, that it's the worst sin with the worst punishments in hell, as we know from the Zohar, says, uh, says Yosef Karo. And he says, no, it's not a problem. The opposite, just as the sexuality of marriage is part of Oneg Shabbat, part of the pleasures of Shabbat, as Maimonides teaches, why shouldn't masturbation be, especially as a preparation for this later stage of marital intimacy, but the education has to start earlier. And finally, his whole notion that this will actually bring God into your life. It's not kibusha yetzer, it's not suppression of desire, but it's channeling of desire in which the natural and the sacred come together into a, into a, wonderful, a wonderful integration in which the most private masturbation in this case can lead to the largest inclusiveness, the inclusiveness of letting God in. And then he has another practical idea. We'll see if Reb Shmuley is interested. I fail my children, says Reb Zalman, when I cannot take them into our bedroom and show them how it's done. Every generation learns so much from generations past about everything else, but about our sexuality and how to make it sacred sex. 
that we have to pick up in the gutter in pornography on Netflix. The wise elder can encourage people to make love sacramentally, transforming a physical act into a prayer and a celebration. So I don't know which of which of you, certainly not me, would offer our, as the next Zoom a Zoom from your bedroom. But that's one of the. That's exactly what uh, Reb Zalman is saying. If we want to teach our children about those most intimate elements, we're going to have to lift the veil of tznius, of modesty, and make that part of the way we embody our Torah for our children. So where's all this coming from? Especially this phrase of how it's done. So for that, as you well know, it goes back to the Torah. It goes back to the mitzvah of onah, that is to the commandment of marital intimacy or marital sexuality. And the rabbis are concerned, in fact, the Torah is concerned with those laws. So it's quite interesting. We actually only have one really important text about this, and it's not so expansive. It's the one in the book of Exodus, that is right after the 10 commandments, right after the Jews have been led out of Egypt. And here's the law. A husband should treat his wife in accord with the law of marriageable women. That's my interpretation of mishpat banot. So if he marries an additional woman, he must not deprive his first wife of her three things. We'll have to explain. She'era, ksuta, and onata. If he does not provide these three, she exits the marriage. So let's get a sense for a moment of what this con what this concrete element is. We're talking about a society in which, different than our society, but not completely different, in which there's a radical asymmetry between husbands and wives. Husbands can have can be polygamous. Husbands tend to be older. Husbands tend to have the economic power as well as the physical power, and therefore the woman is one step down. In fact, the woman they're talking about is a woman who may even have been sold into slavery by her father in order for the woman when she grows up and she's 12, if you consider that grown up, then can become a wife. Now, the problem is, as soon as the man has a second wife, then what about the first wife? Does she have any rights? Right? And the answer of the Torah is, we're going to define those rights because if we don't get into the bedroom and define exactly what's owed in marital intimacy, how can we enforce it? And she has the right if to, to divorce, right? Because they hadn't talked up until now about divorces. She has a right to be divorced, to be released without any payments. So she has the possibility of marrying someone else if this first husband is not living up to his obligations. But what are those obligations? So as you well know, Rashi in the 11th century explains them very simply as three basic human needs, almost biological needs. These three are food, clothing, and sexual intercourse. Now, he doesn't explain what sexual intercourse is, but if we do it by parallel, it's like we have a need to eat and we have a need for clothing and shelter. We also have a need for sexual intercourse. Women have it. Men, we would assume, also have it, but there's no reason to write a law to protect and to define the man's rights, but there is a need to protect as we protect the slave and the stranger and the widow and the orphan. There's a need to protect the wife because of her one-down legal and economic situation. But the Ramban, right, of uh, the 13th century, his interpretation is radically different. 
for him, when we talk about intercourse, it's not one of many biological needs. It's the most, it's the one that defines marriage. It's the only one that Torah is concerned with. And it's not only about sexual fulfillment or sexual expression, it's about eros, it's about love, it's about intimacy in that larger meaning, not intimacy as a euphemism for sex, but something much broader and richer. Therefore, each of the terms are related to that intimacy. She'era, he says, is a term for the flesh. A flesh and bud relative is called she'ero. It recalls Adam and Eve who became one flesh in the garden. Here's his anthropological prototype, which we'll come back to. But it may also mean that she may not be deprived of the touch of flesh of her husband. We're taking flesh here very seriously. He is not to follow the Persian custom of having intercourse in his clothes. That's straight out of the Talmud. And in fact, we have in, in I think it's in the in in some of the in the Tosefta, the notion that if a husband or a wife insists on in having sex only wearing clothes, that is grounds for divorce. Because that intimacy of touch, think about the issues we, we know about from children who are brought up in a for example in an orphanage where they have very little physical touching when they're very young, they may die. It's called the failure to thrive because that physical touch is essential for what it means to exist as a human. Even the minimum existence depends on that love and that contact and that attention. So that's number one, physical touch without sex. That's already part of the Eros. Second, suit is her bed clothes her linens. I don't know when the last time you changed your mattress and bought new linens, but clearly it would be an important consideration for the Rambam. She must be wooed in her bed in an honorable fashion, not on the floor like a prostitute. Of course, in, according to some American movies, of course, it's much more, it's hotter if you would sleep with your, with have sex with your partner on a kitchen table or all kinds of forms of hookup. But he's concerned that there be an act of of dignity here, of treating a person with respect. And that, that becomes essential, dignity and physical warmth and intimacy. And then we get to Ona in is her times of lovemaking. Eight dodim, term which is clearly taken from the Song of Songs, regularly scheduled, even if a second wife is taken. In other words, if we can talk about food security, we can also, and, we, and job security, we can talk about sexual intercourse security. To know this woman knows that she's going to have a personal time with her partner. And that regularly scheduled ona is part of what lovemaking, eight dodim, is about. Again, he hasn't reduced it to the, or, to the orgasm or so on. And one of the persons we're going to get to at the end of this talk, Rabbi Yitzhak Sher, who's a Musernik. Many of you know a lot about certainly the Musser of the 19th century of Yisrael Salanter. And even if you don't, it was typical of the Lithuanians. It was very much a movement that was central to all of the non-Hasidic yeshivot. And usually Musser is famous for teaching us to be rational, to be totally in control of ourselves, to control our desires, not only our sexual desires, but our desire for our pride and to break our pride and to break our sexuality. Right, so that but he but but Yitzhak Sher is a radically different kind of Musernik, one that I don't have any other examples for, 
because he says one who has sexual relations with his spouse without great desire ta'ava has violated the Torah's prohibition on denying one's wife her ona. Marital intimacy requires desire, sexual desire, erotic relationships. That's absolutely essential for him. And we're going to get to Isaac share much more and see where he's going with that. Okay. So let's take a quick view. Let's go back for a moment to remind you. I, I, I love this picture. I got off the internet of this fellow underneath a bed. He represents for us Kahana. We're now doing the Talmudic voyeurism. Um, and we're going to study about two totally idiosyncratic Jewish uh, bedroom protocols, neither of which was meant to be publicized neither of which originally was meant to be a normative standard, at least not in terms of the rabbis involved, but beginning in the Talmud and certainly much later become halachic standards. And here's the first famous one, Rav Kahana, we're in Babylonia, if you can trust any of the dates of the characters. Um, we have Kahana, who is the student of the first generation of the Babylonian Talmudists of Rav, Kahana is under the bed. Kahana is the disciple. He heard him, Rav, chatting and jesting. Sach v'sachak. Notice the alliteration, the playful, the poetic aspect. Chatting and jesting. Playing, laughing, or engaging in foreplay. And gratifying his needs. Rav Kahana, think of him not as Rabbi Kahana, but just as Kahana the student said to him, it seems as if the mouth of Abba which either may be an honorable term, like the word abbot, meaning father, meaning authority, or maybe Abba was even Rob's actual first name, we don't know, had never before tasted that dish. Kahana says, have you never had sex before? What are you getting so excited about? Rav replied, instead of by giving him a rational analysis or a logical argument or quoting a verse from the Torah, he says, Kahana, are you there? Get out. It's not the way of the world. It's not good manners. Derech Eretz, for you to be here, get out. Rav Kahana answered back, this too is Torah, and to learn I must. Now, the point of the story on one level, of course, is to say that Kahana is right. He's actually, you can see where Reb Zalman is getting it from. Yes, the task, the obligation of a rabbi to his disciples is to let them learn the embodied Torah, whether it's in the toilet, in the example of Rabbi Akiva sneaking into his teacher's outhouse to see how he does it, or whether it's sneaking into the, your teacher's bedroom to find out how he makes love to his wife as the mitzvah requires. We call this shimush talmidei chachamim, that by serving your rabbi as if you were a servant, as if you were a valet, you get to know everything about the inside of his life, and you get to see the gap or the lack of gap between his spoken values and his lived values, specifically in dealing with his sexual desires. Now, the problem with this text, I mean, the, the, the point of the text from Rav is a beautiful one. You have to have a conversation with your wife. You have to make it playful. It has to be a gratification of needs. And we absolutely need privacy to do that. 
there is a, a section, a piece in the Talmud, which is brought as uh, as a halachic, as a legal judgment in the Aruch HaShulchan that says that you are not allowed to sleep in the room with a couple. Of course, they didn't have necessarily bedrooms for everybody. And if there's a situation in which a couple is in the bedroom, don't go and sleep in that bedroom because you're preventing them from what? Not necessarily from intercourse. You're preventing them from talking together openly because they, they can't talk openly when there's somebody else in the room. So the ability to talk honestly and intimately, but privacy is absolutely essential here. Kahana doesn't seem to care about that. I agree that we need to find out what's happening in Rav's bed, but in theory, we also have to learn that intimacy requires privacy of a certain kind. Now, what Kahana, unlike any other rabbi I know who's trying to learn from his teacher, is he starts criticizing his teacher in the middle of making love. And he's saying, wow, Abba, Rav, what's, what are you getting off on? What is this business? It's as if you've never had sex before. And maybe that's exactly the point. Rav's point is that whether you're a veteran in your marital relationship or it's your first night, there should be excitement. There should be courting and wooing and bringing, bringing your spouse into the relationship. And that should never be lost. But that's exactly what Kahana seems to totally reject. And in fact, there's other sources suggesting that Kahana turns that into a formal position of his, that there's no mitzvah to woo your wife. And he actually, I think, becomes the person who leads us to our second story, which is the story of Rabbi Eliezer. So let's take a look at Rabbi Eliezer's famous story. Here again is an idiosyncratic bedroom protocol. Ima Shalom is the wife. Uh, this, is, uh, this is set in terms of the Talmudic context in the land of Israel, let's say around 100 CE after the destruction of the temple. They asked Ima Shalom. In other words, the same students again who want to know everything they can about what's happening for their embodied Torah of their Rebbe. And they asked the wife, Ima Shalom, who doesn't seem to be ashamed to tell this story. How do you merit such particularly beautiful children? So first of all, they know how to give a compliment. And the compliment seems to be very effective and say, look, we're actually interested in the question of eugenics. How do we produce the most beautiful children some of you may very well know the story about Rabbi Yochanan, who is one of the most incredibly beautiful men ever, as the Talmud describes him. And he thought the best gift he could give to every Jewish woman was for him to sit outside of the mikvah, outside of the ritual immersion bath, when the woman comes out on her way back to her husband, where she's going to have intercourse after two weeks of abstention. She's going to see this beautiful man, Rabbi Yochanan. That's going to be in her mind. And therefore, the child she produces will be, according to Greek science and Greek eugenics, will be the child that she gives birth to because it's your spiritual and intentionality at the moment of intercourse, which actually impresses itself on the child. Now, you'll see Rabbi Eliezer both agrees and disagrees with that. She answered the curious students. She answered, my husband, Rabbi Eliezer, does not have intercourse with me, neither at the beginning nor at the end of the night, but only around midnight. So write that down. I once asked him, why do we always have intercourse at midnight? That's good. I, would, I think that's a good question to ask. And he answered, so that I do not direct my eyes to another woman. 
In other words, if I th if it's the if it's in the early part of the evening or just before sunrise the next day, then likely there are other people walking around outside or people getting up to go to work. And I might start thinking about other people and then about other women. And if I'm not thinking about you, then it's as if the child I'm producing is a mumzer. That way his children would not become mumzerim bastards. Not because it's out of wedlock and not literally from a legal point of view, mumzerim are bastards, but because the thought will not be pure. He's a pietist. He wants pure thoughts and that will produce pure children. Then when he's having intercourse, he uncovers only a hand breath and then he covers over a hand breath and he acts as if a demon were coercing him to have intercourse. So here we have, of course, one of the most restrictive notions, a totally different notion than what we had with Rav. Because of course, if you can't uncover yourself or your wife, there's a disagreement as to who's being uncovered, you certainly are pretty close to the violation of the ruling that you cannot have sex, that, you, that you're not following the, you're following the Persian custom of having intercourse in clothing, which is grounds for divorce. That doesn't seem to bother Rabbi Eliezer. And perhaps his wife has agreed that she doesn't need that kind of physical intimacy as long as my husband achieves, brings me beautiful children and he reaches his higher spiritual goals. And so then we both get benefit from it. In fact, we're just doing this out of coercion, not because I want to. It's as almost as if, excuse the peril, it's almost as Rabbi Eliezer feels that he's being raped by his own sexual desires. And so he disassociates himself as if a demon were forcing him to have sex, not because he wants it. And that's, that is the way one should do it because the separation of the bodily and the and bodily from the spiritual is the key element for reaching a higher level, right? Now, in the middle ages, of course, there's a debate. You can see both of these stories were not meant to be halakha but they gradually became halakha. Maimonides is of course famous for following according to Rav. And so he says, a husband shall not coerce her. Here we have a halakhic expression of the prohibition of marital rape, unlike the British system, and force her into intercourse against her will, that is rape. Therefore you have to talk to her, you have to woo her but rather let him seek her consent as the outcome of conversation, sicha and simcha. Again, that alliterative element, sicha v'simcha, sicha v'simcha. And what it suggests is, and this is the halacha, that you need to woo your wife for her consent every single time. Now, this is the law for Maimonides. However, Maimonides in many places says it would be much better if we who are above the law who are seeking higher levels of spirituality, whether as philosophers or as Talmidei Chachamim or as pietists, if we could minimize the sex, if we could minimize the conversation, if we could minimize the lightheartedness, the kalut rosh the, of, of Rav, that would be better if our wives agree as long as they agree. Yosef Karo, uh, in the 16th century, who establishes the code of Jewish law, he legislates only according to Rabbi Eliezer. He unusually does not quote Maimonides here. 
He doesn't quote Rav. He doesn't talk about the the need to uh, the need to have have uh, sexuality out of conversation and joy. He doesn't allow coercion, but he also doesn't talk about conversation and joy. And he goes through and he makes explicitly the law according to Rabbi Eliezer. Let me just point out one element here. Even one, even when one is having intercourse at the time of onah, marital intimacy, one should not intend to enjoy himself, but he should think of himself as one who is just paying off a debt, for he's obligated to provide onah, sexual intimacy, to his wife, according to the ketubah, as one is obligated to perform the creator's mitzvah, to be fruitful and multiply, as one who wants to have children, etc. It's not out of pleasure. It's not out of desire. And therefore, if ideally a man can maintain his higher spirituality and at the same time do what he has to to provide his wife with her physiological needs, or if she's willing to be mevater, if she's willing to forfeit those needs for the sake of greater spirituality, that would be the ideal. In other words, the man has to really be a schizophrenic in some kind of a way, separating between what's his true self and what's his false self, that is, the desire that's taking him over. And yet, unlike, of course, monks or Greek philosophers, he does have an obligation to have sex with his wife. All of this is to achieve extra holiness. And that's an important category here, because when we talk about the ultra-Orthodox world, the Haredim, we're talking about people who are not interested in observing the law. They're interested in going beyond the law, in always looking for the strictest, most severe, most demanding, because their goal is to achieve in their lives, in every aspect, extra holiness. And the sexual relationship with your wife, which is not only permitted, but obligatory, is one of the main areas in which you can express it. So I assume that many of you have been well-educated by watching Unorthodox in the Netflix series. Right, about Satmar, or at least about a certain presentation of the Satmar Hasidim of Brooklyn. And uh, I don't know much about Satmar. We don't have much information about them, but I do know about one of the largest Hasidic groups in Israel, that is the Gera Hasidim, the Hasidim of Ger. I know most of this from an incredible scholar, Professor Benjamin Brown at the Hebrew University, who wrote a wonderful, brilliant article on this field in which he shows there's a radical transformation both in the Hasidic world, at least at its extremes, and in the Litvak world towards sexual intimacy in marriage precisely between 1948 and 1950, 1951. So just to remind you, if you don't know about this, you won't get it from unorthodox. The new Rebbe of Gur, right after the Holocaust, appointed in 1948, issued the following ordinances of unholiness on marital intimacy. In terms of frequency, he said, the couple shall have sexual intercourse only once a month. Even though the halakha is at least twice a month for a scholar and every night for somebody who is just an office worker. You'll have to tell me how tiring the works you do and how often you're obligated, right? They said it for once a month. Later on, they also allowed twice a month. In terms of the quality of the relationship, during intercourse, the couple shall aim to minimize physical contact. 
the, cup, the husband shall wear some of his clothes, like Rabbi Eliezer, including his tzitzit, which is a sgula, it's a supernatural remedy against sexual desire, and will not hug or kiss his wife or engage in any behavior that is not absolutely required for the performance of the act of intercourse itself. This is not Rav, this is Rabbi Eliezer. The husband shall direct his thoughts as far away as possible from the sexual act, and therefore, of course, from his wife. And social distancing. Sometimes there's complaints that the Haredim don't know about social distancing. It's clearly not true. Social distancing with your spouse in the Gera community. Never walk alongside one's wife in public, but keep a distance at least four cubits, about two meters. The husband should not address his wife by her first name ever. And of course, no conversations in the bedroom. And this is in fact the way Gera Hasidim behave. And although it was never published, uh, there are many, many anthropologists who from having interviews with various Gera Hasidim have been able to put together these ordinances, which are now not only for the most from, not only for the Rebbe and for the small group of elite spiritual, but every single Hasid has to raise himself to that level. And, uh, and so you can see how this ideal is very powerful. They don't ask the question, what's, what can we get away with in halacha? They ask, how do we make it stricter so we can achieve true sanctity? And according to Benjamin Brown, it's in response to the Gera Hasidim and their ideal of asceticism, which had a big influence also in the Lithuanian world, as some of the Lithuanian students were also trying to achieve higher levels of sanctity by being more machmir, more and more strict halachically. And they said, why shouldn't we be strict and follow the Shulchan Aruch? Why shouldn't we follow Rabbi Eliezer? And, and therefore they were, they were influenced by the Hasidic movement and literally simply by the Shulchan Aruch. So here, here we have, uh, and I'm not, I don't, can't go into it now, we have a couple of amazing letters called the Gerita Kodesh, written by the Chazon Ish in 1950, 1951, and, and a later version of it by his brother-in-law, the Steipler Rav in 1985, in which they write to their students who are increasingly married students in the Kolel, when you get a situation of 80 to 85% of the Lithuanian ultra-Orthodox Jews of the yeshivas who are, remain in the yeshiva for many, many years until they get married, until they have children and very often beyond. And so they needed a letter, how should we behave towards our spouses? And they called it Igerita Kodesh as against the Takanota Kodesh. It's sanctity versus sanctity. And so they said the true sanctity is not what the Gera Rebbe is teaching us. And here is a story told by, in a popular book by Moshe Aaron Shochatovitz, who was a student of, of the Steipler Rev, uh, Rav, and he talks about literally what Americans call calling out a yeshiva teacher for his frumkite, for being so stringent. These are from the popular books. There's something like 300 titles since the 1980s, which are very popular in the ultra-Orthodox world, all about how to live your marriage better. And a lot of them also deal with the sexual issues. And some of them are very sophisticated. They're writing for yeshiva students who know Talmud. And they go back to the stories of Rav and Rabbi Eliezer in order to talk about how the Talmud can help us develop marital intimacy. And here's what he says. This is a story he reports in his popular book. In a Litvak yeshiva, a misguided Talmud teacher 
told his young married students to follow what the Rav Yosef Karo legislates in the Shulchan Aruch. We read it before, it was from Rabbi Eliezer. This stringent teacher's ascetic instructions to his young married students so angered Shokhatovich that he dragged the teacher before Rav Kanievsky, the Steipler Rav, the brother-in-law of the Chazon Ish, the head of the yeshiva, who interrogated this teacher as follows. Rav Kanievsky, tell me, when you do this act, he doesn't want to talk about what it is, this act in fear and awe, which is what the, what the Shulchan Aruch demands. Whom do you fear? The teacher, I fear God. For intercourse involves the indwelling of the Shekhinah, it's the presence of the divine. So I do it with fear and awe because God's there. Rav Kanievsky responded incredulously and sarcastically. You are concerned, you are concerned with the indwelling of the Shekhinah? In your house, there is no divine presence, for we have learned the Shekhinah does not dwell where there is no joy. If there is any fear and awe in this act in your house, it's your wife's fear and awe before you. You are nothing but a lion who assaults and devours. You're not a Talmud Chocham. You're not a scholar. You're not a Ben Torah. You're an Amaaretz. You're a commoner. You're an abusive husband who assaults and devours his wife without worrying about her sexual needs at all. And your children are the children of fear not the children, uh, not the proper children that we need, right? So that's, notice the educational method used by Shochatovitz. And I'm interested, as I showed you with Realm Zalman, in sexual education here. Now, what the Litvaks do is they go back and they revive, let's see if I not skip this. They revive one of the Talmudic stories which I call the only example we have in the Talmud of the Kama Sutra. That is the detailed guidelines for how do you make sex and how do you enhance sexual desire. And this is of course the famous story of Rav Chista's sex education for his daughters. Unfortunately, not particularly well developed in the novel, uh, the novel about Rav Chista's daughters, but it's still not a bad novel. Rav Chista taught his daughters that's why I asked you in the chat, how did your parents teach you sex education? I could have asked, was it your father who taught the men, the boys, and the mother who taught the daughters, or how did it work? In my family, what my father did was, good Rav, a great bibliophile, he took me to the back of his library, which had about 10,000 books in it. He had a whole shelf of 30 volumes, all of them about sex education and hormones and teenage sexual desires. And he said, read whatever you want. That's your sex education. I did a much better job because I married a woman, Marcella, who is a Lamaze teacher. And so she took care of that education. And I think she did a good job as far as I can tell. And now I have a son who's learning to be a sex therapist. So that's pretty good. Now, Rav Chista taught his daughters. He hid a precious stone in one hand and a clod of earth in the other. He let them see the precious stone in one hand, but he did not let them see the clod hidden in the other hand until he had caught, until he had caused them, uh, supposed to be until, sh until um, I'll fix it, until they had been, until, until the husband felt the pain by the denial of their desire to see what was in the other hand. I'm sorry. 
until Rav Chista had caused his daughter's pain by the denial of their desire to see what was in the other hand. Then he did show it. So first of all, the sex education is done with visual aids. It's done symbolically. And of course it requires decoding. So here is Rashi's decoding. 12th century, 12th, probably 11th century. Explain the metaphor. When your husband is feeling your body with a hand to the breast and a hand to that place that is the vagina, give him your breasts to arouse his desire, but withhold the place of intercourse until his desire and his affection are aroused and he's feeling the pain of desire, then reveal it to him. In other words, he's very explicit that the woman has to offer, she has to be open. She's clearly not only uncovering whatever is minimally necessary for the mechanical act of intercourse. No, she has to uncover her breasts. She wants her husband's desire to be aroused. She plays an active role. While Rav is worried about arousing his wife, Rav Chista is worried about his daughters when they get married, arousing their husbands and then causing them pain teasing them because desire depends on a playoff between what you allow and what you don't allow, between what's covered and what's revealed. And one could talk a lot about that basic structure and why it was important to him. Now, what does Moshe Aaron Shulchatevich learn from it in 2003 in his book? He again is talking to yeshiva students and he's saying, look, let's take this story seriously. This is what Rav uh, Kanievsky taught me, he says, let them see the precious stone. The woman must be active in this situation, as opposed to the Christians who hold that a woman's modesty entails her passivity. The Torah requires her to show off her precious stone. Now, I don't really know whether his description of Christianity is legitimate. What I do know is there are many worried people in the ultra-Orthodox world and are many people in the Hasidic world who would never say that a woman is supposed to be active, that she's supposed to demand sexuality. Certainly not. But he, he encourages these students to go against what had been ultra-Orthodox common knowledge by damning it as being Christian, as being heretical. It's the woman should feel empowered and commanded and taught by the practical good advice of Rav Chista, who was a great man and a great Talmud Chochem, and therefore she should arouse her husband's sexual desire. She must respond with her, with her active support to the man who is seeking to arouse his own desire. But we didn't we learn from Rabbi Eliezer that you're supposed to not have any pleasure and to suppress the desire? Not according to the Litvak, Rav Aaron Shochatovich, by engaging in foreplay with the woman's genitals. The woman must use her guile, her wisdom to tantalize her husband until his desire is so aroused that it hurts. Now, I'm not going to give the next example uh, just because we have to, uh, we have a very limited amount of time. But let me get you at least to a little bit of the ending, a taste of a taste of Rav Isaac Sher. So Rav Isaac Sher, he passes away in 1952. He is a Musser teacher, not a Rosh, not the head of the yeshiva, but a Musser teacher in some of the important Lithuanian um, yeshivot. He's one of the first people to be involved in, in uh, teaching courses for yeshiva newlyweds. He's also consulted about how do you teach the, the bride separately from the grooms. 
And this is what he writes, what he thinks is the sexual educational challenge that especially Haredim face. The virtue of love, he says, is not properly developed among the Haredim. I'm not so sure it's well developed among other Jews either, but certainly not the Haredim. Therefore, the couple must learn. You have to literally study this. It doesn't come naturally. To speak words of love, for surely this love is natural and nature is good. It's a mitzvah to enhance and develop it properly. When the couple comes together, the husband must address his wife in a way that conveys not only awe, piety, and chastity, but also, and here he's quoting the Chazon Ish, or he's parallel to the Chazon Ish, tenderness, affection, and he adds, agavim, erotic love. The husband must speak of his wife explicitly even about her physical beauty, meaning her beautiful breasts. Parents and teachers who truly and painfully worry about the happiness of their seed ought to teach their children and students the mitzvah of igniting the flame of love and preparing nature, that is bodily desire, for the act of sanctity, which is the essence of happiness in life, namely to delight in the Lord and to sanctify oneself in God's sanctity. God's sanctity is the sexual erotic love relationship for the core of sanctity is their sexual union, which can only come about through the powerful love between them so that they become one in body and flesh. Now, does this is what happens in Haredi schools? I certainly don't think it does because overall the Haredim are much more concerned about the dangers of before marriage of having sexual desires and control, but, but he wants a revolution that begins already before marriage to develop them on their way to the higher levels. Not so different though, not identical with Reb Zalman who's interested in bar mitzvah children beginning to redefine their relationship to Judaism and to their sexual bodies, right? In fact, the Haredi world is so concerned about illicit sexual relations they, they've created, of course, complete separation between the genders, no conversations. But it just shows you what a radical revolution it is and how much education has to be put into the newlyweds who have no background of talking to the other sex, have no background of understanding the physiology of their own bodies or the physiology of the opposite sex. And yet they suddenly have to make a jump into what Rav Sher describes as the highest form of divine sanctity. So Rav Sher gives some good advice and maybe we all could use it. Every night a bride. One should learn from the case of Rav that it's a mitzvah to act kalut rosh, with lightheadedness, with one's wife exactly as she wishes. Women want that playfulness as if he were a bridegroom just emerging from the wedding canopy who had never had intercourse in his life. Doesn't that sound like Rav Kahana? Rav Kahana said, how could you get so excited? What, you've never had a dish before? You've never had sex before? You've never eaten this woman before? And Rav Sher says, that's the whole point. You have to have the same excitement as if it was the night of your wedding and the first time you'd ever had sexuality, which of course is not identical in the American culture anymore. And that has to be your goal. And she wants him to behave that way so that she too will feel like a bride at the moment of her wedding. 
And that is the way they should behave their whole lives. As it says in Shira Shirim, I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me. Now you may remember from the Talmud that Rabbi Akiva, who makes a big deal out of the Song of Songs, the love songs of Solomon, as if they're, as if they're really about the love song of Israel and God, that never should these songs be sung at a wedding, because then people think this song is really about a pornographic relationship or a mundane human love relationship. But that's exactly what Rav Yitzchak Sher says. It should be like that. We should learn from Shira Shirim from the Song of Songs. A couple should be wise, good advice, to keep a notebook from their wedding celebration and to record all the words of love and compliments they spoke to one another as loving companions. That's a quote from the blessings, the seven blessings of the wedding, Sheva Brachot, from each day and night of the seven days of their marital festivities. Then they should reread them on a monthly night of immersion. That is after the two weeks of separating during the menstrual period and thereafter, so that, that, so that Isaac Sher says, to imagine themselves in the Garden of Eden. In other words, every single month is a new honeymoon, wedding night, sexual reunion with the same sense, not just of sexual desire, but if, of, of wooing one another, of being amazed at the beauty and the amazing thing of each other. In fact, Rav Sher has a whole notion for imagining ourselves into the Garden of Eden. Let me read simply this one. The woman is filled with love. Because we're not only worried about the men's intentionality, but also the woman's. The woman is filled with love and pleasure arising from sanctity and spiritual elevation so that she reaches the apex of the act of incourse. She is fully intoxicated. I'm not talking about being drunk from liquor, which is actually forbidden. She's hovering in the world of imagination. This is like a guided imagery. Then she dreams pleasant dreams illustrated with beautiful images of angels filled with light and radiance flying above her and fetting her with the very same pleasures as in the Garden of Eden itself, which otherwise he describes as bringing them food and barbecue, and it's a physical pleasure. So too, the man in his, this desire, in this act, and with this woman, be filled with elevated thoughts and elevated illustrations of love and sanctity in their unification. Are there any comments or any questions before I end with a very short coda? Sorry for rushing so much. Let me stop the share so I can see people. If there's comments, and then we'll end with the coda. Hi. Excellent, excellent. Wow, that was a ton of content and um, very enriching. So friends, uh, this is your chance to uh, share a thought, ask a question. Um, from Noam, we'll go a little over time. Yeah, Rabbi Balinski, go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Noam. Um, I, I'm wondering, and, and based on stuff I've read before, um, the notion of uh, becoming Tame, uh, biblically, you know, uh, after men, after ejaculation, and on some level, the des what, what we did was the desacralization of sex. We took it out of the temple, we moved it to the bedroom, you know, et cetera. So when I hear this language of the sacred nature of it, and maybe it's also a negative reaction to Reb Zalman, I just wonder if it's going too much in the other direction, not to take anything away from, you know, your key points of this presentation. I just wanted if you could reflect on that for, for a minute. 
let's take another couple of comments and then I'll try to respond, although I certainly don't have the answers. Great. Thank you. Someone else. Well, I, I think I'm the only woman and the only non-rabbi here, so <laughs> maybe. Not the only woman. Okay, great. Thank you. Glad to hear it. Um, rabbi, so that's good. Okay, I'm in good company. Um, I just, um, this was so interesting. Thank you. And I, um, I worked as a sex educator for 30 years at a public university, so right. completely outside a, a Jewish context. But I just wanted to throw it out there. I was thinking as you were talking, um, for for thirty years, when I was, I talked a lot about you know birth control and sexually transmitted infections. But I would also, but I talked a lot about pleasure too because people didn't. And when I would speak in classrooms, I would always ask any group I talked to. I would ask them, like, how many of you in this? How many of you had a parent or teacher? talk to you about birth control, you know, hands went up. How many, you know, talk about disease, hands went up. And I said, how many of you had a parent or teacher who talked to you about pleasure? And maybe one or two hands would go up in a classroom, you know, of 29 to 35 students or something for 30 years. So I know I just want to throw that out there um, in the non-Jewish world or the, in the secular world, including everybody from every background, Jewish and mostly not, that it's this whole thing about pleasure, we're still avoiding it. You know, even now, I've been retired for a few years, but even now, parents are still avoiding it for the most part. So whatever that's worth, I wanted to put that on the table as well. Thank you very much, Lenore. Very interesting. Go ahead, Michael. You have to unmute. Michael, you need to unmute. Yeah, I unmuted myself. Right. So um, in my chat, I, uh, I put something out there that I think um, people don't pay attention to too much. After mm -hmm. all, you have the Shulchan Aruch, but you also have a lot of commentaries that stand around the Shulchan Aruch. And some of them are not so friendly to the Shulchan Aruch. So mm -hmm. I uh, made reference to the Beit Shmuel um, right. on this uh, famous Simchot uh, and uh, he uh, doesn't think that masturbation is absolutely the worst thing you can do. And I think it might be more people, especially young people, might be helped by uh, knowing that they should win. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, uh, and something actually worth reading about is uh, I don't know if you've seen the book. I think it's been translated now into English. Uh, by Yakir Englander and by Avi Sagi, uh, which is a study of in the religious Zionist world, not the ultra-Orthodox world, this vast growth of, um, of online uh, questions, many of them about sexuality, anonymous questions from the religious Zionist world to, to, to rabbis like Rav Sherlo, but all different kinds and have give instant short answers. And they do a whole analysis, especially about how they handle questions, not only about masturbation, which is a major question, but in general about sexuality before marriage of one kind or another. And they have radically different stances that they take, but it's all with a strong psychological aspect of trying to give them guidance. And it's, it's a wonderfully detailed and uh, nuanced analysis. And I highly recommend that book for exploring that question. Again, what we're talking about is how do you handle a desire before marriage or outside of marriage? 
what my emphasis in the book that I did and in the texts I brought all had to do with within marriage itself, marital intimacy itself. And therefore the emphasis is on what the ideal should be and the ideal within marriage, which is a much narrower issue than the big issues that you've raised. I'm gonna try. Oh, please. Um, Noam? Yeah. I oh, yeah. Uh, Rabbanit Michal was gonna share, and then someone else is, uh, and, then, and then Rav Chaim, yeah. Ah, Rav Chaim, go first. I can't do this. No, Michal, please. Come on. Okay. Um, it, it seems like a lot of the conversation is about young couples before marriage, into marriage, and they live happily ever after. What about people in chapters two and three later in their life, uh, for whatever reason, can't or whatever reasons in front of them are not about to get married? Um, anything to say about that? Okay. The last third of the book that I wrote, and I didn't discuss it in any way, has to do with the way in which um, modern Orthodox reform conservative Jewish renewal related to the question of sanctity in terms of sexuality outside of a marital context. Because for them, the issue was not whether there should be a very open, positive sexual relationship within marriage. That wasn't really an issue for them to think about. But the American sexual revolution forced them to deal with that. And that's a whole section of the book trying to deal with that question generally. And so I would simply recommend that you take a look at that, that piece. There's some, again, I am not doing, I'm not a sociologist. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not doing research as to what's really happening. I am looking at the prescriptive realm and the way in which the rabbis tried to create ideals and educate to those ideals. They may be realistic. They may be unrealistic, but in each case, they were trying to take their notion of sanctity and use that sanctity not just to whether to give in or not to give in to what's happening in society, but the opposite, to try to educate and to struggle against what they thought were the dangers of the American sexual revolution. In the case of the Haredim, their way of handling the uh, what they would consider the licentiousness of uh, sexuality and sexualized relationships in the Western world was, as we know, through self-ghettoization, through radical gender segregation towards kosher phones, which means phones that have no access to internet. The big problem for them and that's what these books coming out of the Litvox is, how do you make the radical transition from having nothing about, merit, about sex, nothing about the body, and nothing about interpersonal relations at all, certainly not with the other sex, what happens with that radical transition to marriage. Therefore, most of the books are books, as, you, as you're right, that they wrote for newlyweds, some for, some for uh, women and some for men separate. But as you could hear in Yitzhak share, he was interested and more and more they're interested in what happens when there's a marital crisis related to sexual incompatibilities or love incompatibilities or quarreling after they're married because the rise of divorce and long before divorce of marital abuse, of quarrels, of lack of shalom bayit, those are major concerns. And one of the things pushing Rav Sher and Rav Chazon Ish is to strengthen the marital relationship in the Haredi world in order that we don't lead to violations of Shalom Bayit that ultimately lived, move us on to divorce. 
So they are interested in people beyond the newlyweds, though, and, and some of those books are aimed at newlyweds, but many of them are aimed at married couples, long married. Noam, yes. so, so thank you so much and thank you, and thank you for introducing us. Uh, I, I didn't know of, uh, of Yitzhak Sher, uh, Sher's work, um, but, but I, the question I have about that, uh, in, about, about Sher's move, move is uh, that it feels as if he's trying to compensate too much. In other words, Rav Kanievsky, you know, is, you know, is a, is a realist. Mm -hmm. I mean, he says, you're concerned about the Shrina? What are you talking about? You're making love. Make love. You know? Uh, and and, and I, I don't think he denies, he's not denying the possibility of sanctity. That I think, you know, I, I I, I, I understand, and it's very beautiful. It's really beautiful. It's Ghanaian and, and so on. But I think we have to be careful. That's where that whole question comes in about long-term relationships. And it's not always Ghanaian. And, you know, it's a rare moment. There's a rare moment of Ghanaian. And, and I think we have an obligation, in, both, to, you know, a, a dual obligation, to be both laudatory, you know, to, to raise the level of awareness and and of the uh, and of purposefulness on the one hand, intimacy and pleasure, right? Absolutely. And on the other hand, to be, uh, you know, not to exaggerate um, and be realistic about sexuality. Um, my third, uh, the third point I want uh, is a question for you. Can you send us uh, a, a bibliographic list of these Haredi sources? You so you know what's for him? You 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 of, of shares. I mean, I just looked up. I just went online to see. I'm not unaware of his writings, uh, of where, of what the sources are. Benny Brown's article would be uh, uh, interesting to us, I think. Uh, anything, you know, what you think? Maybe one page with a number of these sources uh, would be would be helpful. Well, maybe if I can ask Shmuley to send uh, me the the emails of all the people who participated, then I can send out the material, and you can read whatever you would like from what I can provide from you. And for the people who want it in Hebrew, then I can give you, I have a, and I have a scan of Kedushat Yisrael and a lot of these, a lot of these books as well. Yeah, they're on Hebrew books. I, you can get them in Hebrew books. Some of them, yeah, some of them are in the Hebrew books or in the Otsara Chochmah, and absolutely they're, they're available. In general, I agree with you that a marriage is a complicated phenomena that, of course, involves lots of discussions. And many of the books that, the, that are popular in the ultra-Orthodox world, I don't know where they got it from, but it sounds just like self-help books that you can find in any American bookstore. And a lot of them are about Shalom Bayit. Sometimes their advice about Shalom Bayit is very far from anything I'd be interested in. For example, encouraging the women to let the men have control and encouraging the men to know that unfortunately women now have to have reasons for things and they can't simply tell them, you know, do it without it. So sometimes the advice is not my kind of advice. Very often it is. So there's tons of the books. But what's radical here is not that there's a concern for Shalom Bayit. What's see, I'm interested in the intellectual history of this. What Rav Sher does is the most radical transformation. You're right, the Chazon Ish and the Steipler, their point of view is men and women have to talk to one another. 
and men and women have to have sex because you owe your wife that sex. And there's nothing unsacred about that. It's the opposite. It's that's sacred because that's what the Torah demands of us. It's rough share. From the very beginning, at the same time, 1950, 1951, he's the most radical voice because he be, because he thinks this is Avodat Hashem. Mm -hmm. It's not just that he thinks this is a way for me to handle the problem and how do I solve marital. I mean, I, that's part of the reason for this being publicized. But I think he just really believes it. And it's like no Musernik I've ever heard of or ever read at all. He quotes the Kabbalah and he takes it seriously and he makes it into the highest, the highest religious calling. You have to understand why. Again, in the Haredi world, nobody is looking for a Hakala. They're not looking for anybody to give them a break. The opposite. They want to do things only if it raises them to a higher level. And that's why also uh, Rabbi Belinsky's comment about, you know, this is not necessarily very practical or the real world. Actually, the point of share is that we can only appeal to these people who are who believe in an ascetic idealism of being machmir if we can establish a counter ideal, which has an even higher calling to it, which makes this the highest form of avodat which is through love, right? That's, that's a different educational mode than the one of let's be practical. You can find both among the many, many titles in the Haredi world. But in terms of a breakthrough, in terms of a new spiritual ideal, this it's Rav Sher, I think, who is the most radical, maybe not the most practical. Anybody else? And then we'll... Uh, We'll let you guys uh, go Rav on with Steve, your days. Yeah, Rav Steve, go ahead, go ahead, and then I see Rav Michael's got one, and then we'll wrap up. So, okay. yeah, so Noam, is, um, I'm familiar with, with uh, your writing on this, and it's incredibly beautiful, and I'm, I, 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 you know, I'm not the only male, but I may be the only gay person on the, on the call. I, I think that the, the question that, I, I just spent an hour today speaking with a young girl who's, uh, 17 wanting to know whether the Isure, Nagia, and Yehud apply to her as she's discovering herself to be a lesbian. Uh -huh. um, so I just want to put on the table that part of the challenge is not only that we uh, deal with these questions from a perspective, you know, that's uh, heteronormative, but how do we actually, you know, think about this from the perspective of a 14 or 15 year old who's trying to understand themselves as a gay person in the world? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And that's why I think Reb Zalman, I don't necessarily think he had the, the, the answer, but he was certainly right. And so is Rob Sher, that the education has to begin at the school age level to your to nature, to your body, to relationships, to the positive value of love rather than what usually happens in the ultra-Orthodox world and perhaps in other worlds as well as Lenore tried to teach us which are about suppressing and uh, marginalizing the issues of pleasure and, and so on. We need to have a positive attitude toward nature and sanctity. And that has broader significance. And of course, each individual community will be different for their religious and for their uh, orientations. But I think the hesitations of Chaim and others, and, and, and I also have my nervousness too, that, that Rav Zalman is hardly a model. Rav Zalman, you know, right. famously 
was concerned about his Peleg Schultz, you know, in the process of his ongoing marriages. So um, there are, the, you know, uh, this is a complex question uh, around around uh, sexuality and leadership and the, the demonst you know, de demonstrating what's, uh, you know, what's legitimate, what's not legitimate by, you know, sanctifying all sexuality ends up becoming a little bit of a double-edged sword. <laughs> right, right. I, that's right. I mean, the context of Reb Zalman is different, but the context of all of the people that I brought are, of course, they're talking only within marital intimacy, which is both inadequate, but already shows a concern for control and limitation. And that's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is within those contexts, how do you make sure, how do you live a double life in a sense? That's their problem. How do I live a life that towards the outside world and, and, and internally up until my notion of marriage, I'm gonna be very restrictive and everything is about demonizing the danger of sexuality. And then how do I make that radical transformation in their world? That's their particular educational challenge. And it's a very difficult one. I think North American ones and non-ultra-Orthodox ones are very different challenges and require very different approaches. But what can you do in an hour when I am not a sex educator, but only an intellectual historian. Okay, Rev. Michael, uh, last question here. Yes, well, uh, Noam, as an intellectual uh, historian, I wonder whether you uh, made a, or will make a connection at some point um, mm -hmm. between uh, that wonderful book that is ascribed to the uh, Ramban, namely Yeret HaKodesh, yes. and uh, um, Rav Sher. Um, is he just doing a popularization of a, uh, an otherwise um, rather difficult Kabbalistic text? Right. Miyuchas la Ramban, but probably Ibn Jakatilia, we don't really know. He, look, what he's doing is he's going back to that realm and he's saying this has fallen out of our, uh, of our community's ethos and Certainly, it's fallen out of the education of our yeshiva students, and we need to bring it back in. And the role, therefore, of Kabbalah is very important. Of course, you can get lots of things from the Kabbalah. You can get this total condemnation of masturbation as the worst sin in the world. Just watch how they suffer in hell. And you can get other things. What's happening is this is an attempt to turn it into an educational model. That's what they're trying to do. And I think in so many ways, he goes way beyond uh, the Ramban or way beyond the Igerita Kodesh and so on. And I think he does it because of his practical ideas, like what a nice idea to write down all the nice things you said to your, your, your significant other when you formed the relationship and to try to create deliberately an ongoing renewal of your honeymoon experience. Will this solve all your marital problems? Of course it won't. But I know that when my wife, who is a, a, a therapist and works with marriage groups, and the people come to her, of course, when there's lots of Taurus between them, what's the first thing she does is tell me about how you fell in love. And when they go back to retell the moments of when they fell in love, then actually they rediscover why they want to have a relationship. That may not be enough to counterbalance, and certainly not it's a practical solution to their to the quarrels and issues between them, but it's an essential basis. And Rav Sher says we have to constantly renew that basis as best we can over and over again, besides Shalom Bayit. And the result, he says, 
and here he has this larger vision, it will lead to the ultimate mitzvah, he doesn't call it tikkun olam, but very close, of bringing achadut, unity to the world, love to the world, and peace to the world, which is the larger goal of all of Judaism. And it just so happens, and not just so happens, that the marriage bed is one of the places where we can do a lot towards that ultimate larger goal. The mini and the macro come together in a very special way. Noam, as always, very, uh, very rich, very high level and thoughtful. And I'm leaving with so many questions and thoughts and texts to teach. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Reb Noam, for uh, this, this great session. You can share the recording with others. We'll have it up in about a day. Have right. a wonderful and day. Emails, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you email me if you want the additional sources, and I will forward those along to you after Noam sends them to me. Thank you. Take care.